This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me, it's powered by digital media. Today's sponsor is Videoblocks, a stock media company with clips everyone can afford. A Videoblocks subscription gets you unlimited daily downloads from a library of 115,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and cinemagraphs. On average, subscribers pay less than a dollar per download over the course of a year. Everything is 100% royalty free. Cancel your subscription and keep what you download and maintain your rights forever. Get your yearly subscription today for only 99 bucks at videoblocks.com slash recode. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires, uh, who's had many cool jobs, which we'll talk about several of them. The one I want to start off talking about is your first job in New York. Was it your first job in New York? Founding mm, editor? No. no, of course not. You had a job. We're <laughs> here with Elizabeth Spires, who, among other things, was the founding editor at Cocker. Welcome, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you for having me. She's also my neighbor, so this fulfills every sort of stereotype of, of Brooklyn media people <laughs> hanging out. The caveat is we haven't seen each other for a year, so that destroys the stereotype a little bit. Yeah, I think we used to run into each other more in Manhattan than we do living four or five blocks away. So. Yeah, in deep Bay Ridge, too. So that's yeah. the part of the Brooklyn stereotype that doesn't hold up. Hello again. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. When people hear this, Gawker Media will have a new owner um, via a bankruptcy court auction. Later tonight, I'll see you at a New York media party that Gawker's having. It's a wake for Gawker. I want to ask you about sort of where you think the company will go, but but start off by explaining how you got that job. How did you become the founding editor of Gawker? Uh, I met Nick Denton at a Metafilter meetup in 2000. Uh, we were introduced by Anil Dash. I met Corey Sika there, too. Explain to people who are not steeped in New York blog world what a Metafilter party is. So Metafilter was uh, it's still around. It's a group blog founded by a guy named Matt Howey. In 2000 or so, I don't think a lot of people were blogging categorically. And so if you knew about Metafilter, you were probably part of you know an early web community or, or just kind of an outlier. I mean, people who were blogging at that point were blogging about technology or politics and almost nothing in between. If blogging writing, wasn't a job, right? It no, was something and you it did was a hobby. For giggles. And it was fairly obscure. You know, the New York Times was still having to explain what a blog was, and any time they wrote about it, and they were still spelling it capital W-E-B-L-O-G. Yeah. So I, I went to a New York meetup for Metafilter, and I kind of, you know, there there were several of us who had blogs, and we were reading each other. So I was reading Nick's blog. He was reading mine. We were both reading Anil Dash, and I was reading The Morning News, and Corey was writing there. So my perception is all you guys lived in the Lower East Side of the East Village, or, or at least were like... Kind of, I think we all lived downtown at okay. the time. Nick had just moved to New York, so he'd been there for two weeks. And Nick had, Nick had, had built and sold a couple of businesses. Yes. He started a, a company called First Tuesday with three other entrepreneurs in London, sold it, moved to San Francisco with a childhood friend of his... David Galbraith, and, and a third friend, and they started Moreover in San Francisco. They had an exit. I think Nick left the company before they had an exit, but uh, he moved to New York to do a new software company that he was calling the Lafayette Project, and over several years it morphed into Kenja. But, Which is now, was a sort of a white whale for him for a long time. Yes, Technology yes. platform. But so, so you meet him at this party. You're blogging for giggles on the side. What are you doing to, to pay the bills at this point? Uh, I was a buy-side tech equity analyst for a little Long Island hedge fund. You had a job on Wall Street. Yeah. Except it was in Long Island. Yeah, and I was getting paid 50 grand a year. So I didn't have the uh, job on Wall Street in the sense that... But you had a job. Yeah, that's true. I was employed. And you're talking to Nick, and he says, hey, well, I want to create a snarky site about media that will uh, get sued by Hulk Hogan. Not exactly. That didn't happen for a year. Uh -huh. What happened was uh, Nick and I started hanging out socially a lot, and I started 
dating his best friend. And then uh, the best friend dumped me, but I kept Nick. <laughs> and so, but we would talk about blogging every now and then. And at some point we went to lunch and he had talked about starting a commercial blog, but not as a primary business, almost as marketing for what was going to be Kenja. And uh, he hired Pete Rojas to write Gizmodo part-time. And this was August of 2002 when Gizmodo launched. And a few months later, we went to lunch and he said, you know, I want to get your thoughts on something and thinking of doing a New York blog. And I thought... Oh, so Gizmodo, the gadget blog, preceded Gawker. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize. And so when we had lunch, I thought Nick was just asking me what I thought of the idea on a business basis, and I was in analyst mode. Yeah. And so we had an entire lunch where I didn't realize he was pitching me to write it until I left. And at the time, he used to do this thing where if he was making somebody an offer, if they said no, he would have plausible deniability that the offer was ever made. But I'm a little oblivious, so I didn't realize that that's what was happening until the the guy that dumped me sort of emailed and said, why didn't you take that job Nick uh-huh. offered you? And I said, uh, did he offer me a job? So, and so what was the job? It was create a media Manhattan-centric... Yeah, it was kind of... Um, he had the idea that we would do a sort of insidery guide to New York. And I think his original conception of it would have been that it would be sophisticated, but, you know, not pretentious. It was going to be, there was going to be a heavy service component, which it's never really had. And he didn't really have any, you know, structured idea of what it was going to look like editorially. But I think we both liked each other's writing. And he was like, well, you're just going to do 12 posts a day about things that are New York related. And he felt very strongly that media should be covered at the time uh, and that personalities in media should be covered. And, And that was new territory for me, I, he had to explain to me who Tina Brown was. Um, so you you were you were in blogging world, but you weren't someone who was aspiring to get a job at Condé Nast or move up the the ranks. No, but there is one coincidental thing, which is that I was getting bored with equity analysis, so I started looking for kind of business journalism jobs because I wanted to write. Yeah, and I ended up interviewing with Jason Calacanis to be a sort of deputy editor on Silicon Alley Reporter, Venture Reporter, one of those publications. And Nick and I had already decided we were going to do Gawker. So I remember meeting with Jason for a last round interview and saying, there's just this one thing. I'm going to do this side project with a friend of mine, and I feel like I should disclose it because it's, you know, it would be public. And this was before I had any concept of how much time Gawker was going to take up. And Jason was like, oh, that's fine. But then I, he didn't hire me. So, <laughs> and, and for the folks who aren't deeply steeped in this stuff, Jason Calacanis and Nick Denton were then rivals for quite a long time within Gadget and Gizmodo. When Gawker popped up, I was in media at a mid-level, low-level job at, at Forbes, and it felt like you were writing a site for me. Yeah. Right, it was gossipy and it had really an snarky edge to it, which I really liked. It was also fairly disposable, and then you'd do occasional stunts, like you got yourself into the Condé Nast cafeteria, which is a big deal. Uh, you interviewed a Coke dealer who mm-hmm. served Wall Street. That was that was a ton of fun, and it seemed like it was hard to imagine that something like that hadn't existed before. Did you have a model you were using? Uh, yeah, I was a fan of Spy Magazine. It was a little bit before my time, but I, I sort of discovered it after its heyday. And became a little bit obsessed with it. I also liked The Observer during that period. You know, New York sort of Peter Kaplan, Heyday, and Suck.com, 
was a model. Yeah, and these are all my favorite things. <laughs> so this makes sense. You wrote the story. You wrote this for me. And then, and for a while, it seemed like that voice that you worked on because Gawker eventually became a much bigger thing and spread mm -hmm. to other sites became the sort of default way the a certain kind of web person spoke, wrote to each other, typed at each other. Yeah. Do you ever think about sort of that legacy that you created there? I think I'm not sure I created it. You know, I, I feel like if if you look at the places I just mentioned, sucks by the Observer, it was there. The difference is, you know, the Observer at the time was sort of stubbornly refusing to put any of their stuff online. Right. The Spy existed before the online era. Suck had folded, so there was nothing, I guess, in the market and digital media that looked like it at the time. But uh, you know, there were certainly comparables. And then if we fast forward all the way up until modern era, I mean, one of the things that people talk about when they talk about the success of a site like BuzzFeed is it's not like Gawker. It's much more positive and friendly mm -hmm. and it's designed to be shared on Facebook and people share positive things on Facebook. Do you think we'll sort of cycle or, or sort of the pendulum will swing back to sort of snarkier, meaner things again on the web? I don't know. I mean, I also think there, there have been so many incarnations of Gawker. And if you, know, if you read it when I was writing it, it wasn't really negative. It was sort of gleefully laughing at the fact, you know, the sort of insidery New right. York notion that the entire world revolves around New York. And so the kind of alter ego voice that I was using was a persona that had no self-awareness. And that was part of the fun of it. You know, you could write in this voice, the typical oblivious New Yorker who thinks that the entire world stops outside of Manhattan and so, and this was before Brooklyn was a brand right. in and of itself. So it was easy to sort so of talk about. you still had to convince about, a cab driver to take you to Brooklyn. Yeah. And you could talk about gentrification and through the lens of class warfare. And, but it wasn't the same kind of, Gawker has gone through periods with certain writers where there was this kind of viciousness that I don't think I ever had, unless it was something that, where I, I just really felt like, like, I get that kind of anger when I think about Donald Trump right now. Right. But I would have never gone after somebody just gratuitously or, or just because I didn't like them. Like, there there wasn't – I didn't have that impulse. I don't think I have that impulse now. And for better or worse, people remember or will remember Gawker for its extreme posts, both the positive ones and the negative ones. Uh, but it's always easier to think about the negative ones. Right. I mean, prior to the Hogan trial, a year ago, really, uh, Gawker had gone through this, it goes through these periodically, this giant convulsion because they had outed a publishing executive. Yeah. I think really a reprehensible story. But there were a lot of the reaction, and, and the story was taken down, and a lot of the writers who were on staff were upset about that happening. Not that they it was published that it was taken down. Yeah. And then you heard commentary from, from Gawker alumni saying, this is, what are you talking about? This is, this is the kind of Gawker media post we would always do. And I don't think that's true. Like, I, I can't think of another comparable that would have been. I, I was astonished that it seemed like not only was the existing staff thinking this was a good thing to have done, but there were people saying this was, this was represents Gawker media. I was, I, and I was wondering if there was a, a through line that I missed there. Cause it never seemed I like. I don't think so. I, I think that maybe two people who said that yeah. are, are kind of anomalies in and of themselves because my impression and granted you know I, I don't work there but from people that I talk to there is that everyone pretty much universally except for the people directly responsible for that story was appalled by it um, and, and you know it's significant that Nick did take it down not because he believed that you know you remove it from the internet and it's gone but because that's unprecedented for Gawker history and he felt strongly enough that 
that was such a horrible story that even if just symbolically, you know, you to convey to staff and convey externally that it's not what Gawker is supposed to be doing. And we all understand that. So, like I said, Gawker will have a new owner, maybe Ziff Davis, mm-hmm. maybe somebody else. In in whatever condition, whoever buys it, do you think there's any way that sort of the the DNA that Nick has built up and the kind of stuff that Gawker and the other blogs do will be able to continue with the new owner? Do you think that eventually gets sort of absorbed into whatever Borg acquires it? I don't know. It? I mean, I think the the bigger the company that absorbs it, the more all of it gets toned down just because of more liability-oriented legal oversight which I think happens in any big media company. Um, it makes it more difficult to do risky stories. And on some level, that might be a good thing for Gawker. You know, somebody asked me the other day, well, how did that Condé Nast story or CFO story even get published? And I said, you know, Gawker has hundreds of people working for it. The notion that Nick Denton would see every post before it went up is ludicrous at a, if a company that size. Right. But I also think, you know, at some level, a little more bureaucracy might useful. Right, there aren't a ton of layers of that company. You can't, you know, you, you don't have to worry about something slipping through one crack and then being a giant disaster. So we're going to take a quick break here for one second. Talk to one of our fabulous sponsors. Today's show was brought to you by Videoblocks, a stock media company that everyone can afford. With the Videoblocks subscription, you get unlimited daily downloads from a library of 115,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and cinemagraphs. On average, subscribers pay less than a dollar per download over the course of a year. It's the same stuff you'd find on more expensive sites, just way cheaper. Videoblocks is always adding new content, so it stays fresh. And as a subscriber, you get everything 100% royalty-free, even if you cancel your subscription. Yep, you heard that right. Whether you're working on personal or commercial projects, you pay zero royalties and keep what you download forever. Videoblocks is offering my listeners a one-year subscription for $99. That's 50 bucks off the usual price tag for my listeners only, less than 10 bucks a month. You can get your subscription today for only 99 bucks at videoblocks.com slash recode. That's V-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash recode for this exclusive offer. Today's show is also sponsored by Helix Sleep. Most mattresses are one-size-fits-all, and if you want a customized mattress, that would cost you thousands of dollars. Until now. Go to helixsleep.com, answer a few simple questions. They will run a 3D biomechanical model of your body, which sounds scary, but apparently it's good. They'll use that model to engineer the most comfortable mattress you've ever slept on. Helix customers report a 30% improvement in overall sleep quality. Better for couples because they customize each side of the mattress. Your mattress shows up at your door in about a week. Shipping is 100% free, and you have 100 nights to try it out. If you don't love it, they will pick it up, bring it back, give you 100% refund, no questions asked. Sounds great. Go to helixsleep.com slash recode. You get 50 bucks off your order. That's helixsleep.com slash recode. helixsleep.com slash recode. They want to just keep saying this until you figure out that you should go to helixsleep.com slash recode. (laughs) <laughs> We're back with Elizabeth Spires, who's been very gracious to sit in a very humid studio with me. I appreciate it. We just went through Gawker's past and present. Um, I want to hear a little bit more about some of the things you've done in New York. You've had a million sure. different jobs. You were at Media Bistro. Does yeah. Media Bistro still exist? Uh, yeah. It got bought by Internet.com. Ellen Meckler bought it. And then 
I feel like it's um, mostly an education job board company yeah, now. Yeah, that seems right. Uh, yeah. New York Magazine, um, you've consulted for lots of folks. Um, you now have your own property. I want to ask you about uh, your tenure at the New York Observer, just because sure. that's timely as well. You work for Jared Kushner. Yeah. Everyone knows Donald Trump's son-in-law. And I think people have been asking about this for a period, and then if you eventually blogged about it and sort of explained your relationship with Jared. And it yeah. seems like you got along with him reasonably well. As a, uh, as I a, got along as with him better than any of my predecessors. And I think some of it was uh, he knew that I had an entrepreneurial streak, and so we could talk about the business side. And, you know, I wasn't – A, wasn't afraid of it, and B, was act- actively interested in it. What was – because uh, he, was, he was married in the Trump family when you were working for him, right? Yeah. So what was your perception of his relationship with that family at the time? I mean, he, he loves Donald Trump. They, they have a good relationship. I think maybe partly because their families have similar histories. They're both, you know, dynastic commercial real estate people. The fathers on both sides have their share of notoriety for different reasons. Um, I think that's also probably part of the reason why Jared and Ivanka bonded. So, and Trump has always been, I think, good to him, you know. So, so they have a good relationship. And it doesn't surprise me. I think uh, Ivanka is very close to her father, and that's a factor, too. So now, by all accounts, Jared's intimately involved in the campaign, offering yeah. advice. Did it surprise you that he would get himself that immersed into the workings of Donald Trump's presidential aspirations? Or did you figure, all right, if that's what the father's doing, that's what he's going to be doing? No, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, you know, I think Jared's always been interested in politics and always had very strong political viewpoints, you know, and... Like any newspaper owner, he was on the editorial board. So when you look at the Observer's editorial page, you're seeing viewpoints that reflect the owners. You know, he didn't have any involvement in the rest of the paper on any material basis. But if you want to understand his politics, you could look at the edit page of the Observer and you would see that. So he bought. So the Observer, as we were talking about earlier, was for a long time sort of the successor to Spy Magazine, at least in New yeah. York. Very snarky, very insidery, again media centric. Created many, many people who have been gone on to great success in the media world. It was kind of a graduate school for media, but and a money losing one. Um, yeah. And then Kushner bought it, uh, and then went through a succession of editors. When he brought you on, what was his ambition? What, what did he want the Observer to be? I think he didn't know. He, he knew that it wasn't working. Like he had a, the, my immediate predecessor had a plan to turn it into kind of a competitor to Cranes, which which I like the guy who's my predecessor. But I thought, yeah, I thought that was strange. You know, it wasn't really what the Observer did. And so I initially started talking to Jared because he had we'd met earlier, right after he bought the paper, and we were talking about maybe doing a partnership between Deal Breaker. Uh, Wall Street site that I started and and the Observer, and subsequently the Observer tried to buy Deal Breaker and you know Deal didn't come together. But he asked me to come in to talk about maybe consulting them and figure out you know what the editorial strategy should be and in particular what the digital strategy would be. And when I came in, I frankly was overbooked and I wasn't that terribly interested in consulting the Observer because <laughs> I knew. That, you know, they don't really have a budget. And I didn't think that the problem was the look and feel of the website, which is what they were approaching me. They wanted a new website. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, you know, the, the problem with the Observer isn't the website. It's that it's not the Observer anymore. And, you know, if you want it to have the influence that it had during its heyday, it's it's really got to talk about power elites in New York. And it's it's got to cover that. And when I came in, they were doing these features. They, they had a feature that particularly infuriated me called the player 
And it was just a profile of like a junior real estate broker. Mm. And it was just painful to read. And I, you know, I told Jared, I said, you know, if you go back to when the observer really had a lot of power, it was because it didn't pull any punches and it talked realistically about what power structures in New York look like. This is who's really running New York. This is who really matters. Yeah. And and you wouldn't see these kind of, you know, blowjobby pieces about junior people just because, and, and I think Jared was still trying to figure out like what it meant to be the owner. And I think when he bought the paper, he thought it meant that he suddenly had a media property that would be a PR vehicle for all of his interests. And you had to disabuse him of that notion. Yes. And how'd that go? Uh, mixed results. I, I feel like uh, I, I had some... We had some thorny conversations, but we somehow managed to end up in the right place most of the time. I do know at least one of my predecessors, you know, reaction to those kinds of conversation was to just avoid Jared. And I don't think that's ever really good policy, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm reserved, but I'm not afraid of having those conversations and they don't intimidate me. So the best thing I could do is kind of explain to Jared, in as much as he was willing to listen or see it demonstrated that the paper would have no credibility if it didn't do these things. And I think you know, you've written that he, he basically gave you a lot of room to operate. It wasn't, it wasn't yeah, if you were... Yeah, especially in the beginning. Like, I, I think for the first couple of months, he sort of said, well, you know, do whatever you think you need to do. Um, unfortunately for me, six weeks in, Donald Trump declared his candidacy for presidency. It was 2012, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then thankfully, he, he sort of dropped out shortly thereafter um, because we had a lot of arguments about that. And I think if he'd stayed in the race, like I, I wouldn't have lasted very long Because you all. would have wanted to cover Trump and cover his campaign Yeah, I think we would have just hit these untenable walls where if, if, you know, Donald Trump's getting up and saying insane things and he's the front runner, you know, it, it's very difficult for paper to be in that position. You know, you, you're historically, you know, one of its strengths is that it covers New York politics. And in this case, you know, you have two New York politicians who are the front runners in a major presidential contest. And one of them is very vocal and keeps saying the kind of things that the observer would normally latch on to. Um, and for a while, because Jared knew that I admired Peter Kaplan, he would go whenever I would. He, and this is a Trump technique. Writer, yeah. I feel like you know whenever I would do something that he didn't like, he would go, "Peter Kaplan would have never done that." I'm like really, Peter Kaplan would have never covered Donald Trump. Can I point you to the six times he was on the cover? <laughs> you know? So um, as you say, he is doing. And Trump is saying insane things. It seems like it might actually be having an effect. It's mid-August as yeah. we're taping this. Things could change, but it looks right now as if he's going to get destroyed in the election. Yeah. Again, who knows? Assuming that Trump loses, do you think Jared's ambitions sort of politically are, are done, or do you think he wants to remain in that orbit? I don't know that he would run for office, but I, I do think this whole process has probably whetted his appetite for being more politically involved, especially if you think he, he likes it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think he historically, you know, he's not the kind of person who who really <laughs> likes keeping a low profile. And I don't think that, uh, I mean, he would say otherwise, but at some point, um, I remember he, he bit on the Dodgers while I was at the Observer. And we were doing a CIA story that the CIA didn't like. And so they were calling and trying to find Jared. And at some point, their spokesperson called and said, uh, you know, Leon Panetta wants to talk to Jared and can't find him. And I said, really? The CIA can't find Jared Kushner? <laughs> I mean, he's married to Ivanka Trump and just bit on the Dodgers. He's not living in a mountain somewhere. <laughs> he's not laying low. 
No. He, I mean, no. he has this sort of patrician effect as if he's not, and he doesn't, you know, you, you won't see him being interviewed on Crossfire Doesn't Exist. Whatever replaced Crossfire on CNN. He doesn't have the same appetite for attention that Donald Trump has, but I think he he wants to be, I mean, like everyone, respected. And, and I think he believes that having influence and power is a, a direct route to that. And I would imagine that being behind the scenes on the Trump campaign at the level he he is has probably, you know, given him a, a little bit of an education about how you do that so in you, a way that is not, you know, operating in a teeny tiny industry in New York that's mostly dynastic and uh, small. You are so. super savvy about New York and power and media and, and what people who run things want out of life. But you weren't born into this milieu, right? You came. No, from... I, I grew up in a small town, Alabama. And My dad was a local lineman for Alabama Power. And did you want to be in this world? Did you? A lot of folks, you know, the classic, like I want to be in New York. I want to work at a magazine. I want to work in media. Uh, no, I knew that I was probably going to move out of Alabama, but I didn't. I think it was more that I, I just read a lot as a kid, and I think whenever you do that, your cognitive landscape is just a lot broader. Like you, you don't take it for granted that you're still going to be in the same place in 20 years. Um, you see opportunities available to you that would not be obvious, I think, if you didn't develop that inner landscape and learn about what the rest of the world is like. But no, I didn't. When I was growing up, I, I knew that I wanted a career of some sort. But you know, for a while, I thought that meant I was going to work in foreign policy or be a lawyer, you know, and it, and it could have gone that way. I feel like there are so many things that have happened in my career where if I had just not gone to this one event or met this one person, my life would be totally different. Occasionally I'll read some of the posts you put up and, and they talk specifically about the fact that you've got a perspective that a lot of people you talk to and live with and, and work with don't, mm-hmm. um, which is you don't come from New York or sort of blue state world. You came from middle class, working class background, uh, religious background. Is that sort of in your head all the time that sort of you're not of this group or are you in the group now? Uh, it's kind of both. You, you, I mean, I've been in New York for 17 years now. So I think I've probably been brainwashed into New Yorker-ishness by now. But I still, especially in, in you know an election environment like the one we're in right now, it's hard not to look at the way that I think people in New York who haven't been outside of New York look at the rest of America and they're they're surprised that Donald Trump has gotten the traction that right. He has. And there's lots of earnest and, and well meaning. That's really surprising to those of us who spent time in those areas or in, in grew up in conservative areas. Yeah, it's I, th- I think there's shocking. a lot of well meaning people saying, "Well, I don't get it. Uh, yeah. What are these people like?" And you have to read about them, right? What what yeah. do these people want? There's good stuff passed around about that. Let me ask you what you're doing now. The insurrection is mm-hmm. is you've done a lot of consulting and sort of started things and, yeah. and and moved on, but this is your own company. Yeah. Um and so the insurrection is what? Uh it's an agency and research firm and we have a focus on virtual reality. So agency and research for meaning people come to you and say, I want to create something in VR, help me do that? Yeah, a lot of that. And then in some cases, like we just did a research project a couple of months ago for a company called RoomScale that does pop-up VR arcades, and we were just doing qualitative surveying for them. Longer term, we're working on developing an analytics product that works in VR environments, and I'm in the middle of a fundraising round for that. How'd you, how'd you pick VR as a focus? It seems, I don't know you that well, but it yeah. seems like it's, it's such a sort of futuristic, it's a sort of untethered place to be 
Um, yeah, you seem I pretty think, concrete. You know, I've always been interested in, in futuristic stuff. I mean, before Gawker, I was a buy-side tech equity analyst. And so, uh, but, you know, I, I sort of had some success in media. And I think I just kept doing that because it was fun. And I know how to do it reasonably well. But my intellectual interests, I think, are a little broader. And so I was interested in biometrics and analytics and data and I kind of fell backwards into VR because I was thinking about doing an analytics product that had a use case for VR. So I went and did some, you know, heavy immersion VR and I think had had an experience that when you talk to people who are into VR, everybody's had, which is the first time you do a, a real immersion experience, you come out of it. And a real um, immersion experience is what? It's it's like fully enclosed, uh, putting on a real HMD, maybe ha- with some haptics or controller, and so this is like uh, the the Facebook Oculus set. Yeah, I would say you know Oculus, maybe not Gear VR, which is a little bit lower level uh, VR, but you get a sense for what the possibilities are, even if it's a little clunky right now. So this is what you're saying. If if I can summarize it, is when you use the state of the art. VR tech that's available really to only a handful of people right now, as opposed yeah. to the Google cardboard that the New York Times is sending out. Other people have played with a little bit. It's a radically different thing, and until you experience that, you don't really understand what people are talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think anybody would see Google cardboard and go, "Oh, that's cool," but you know, it's not anything remotely. It's a, Google cardboard board versus a full immersion experience is the difference between looking at a two D cartoon and looking at a Pixar movie. And so I came out of you know, full immersion experience and just thought, you know, I, I get the hype. And, and historically, I, I think I'm kind of skeptical about those things. And partly because of the analyst background, I tend to be a little dismissive. And I told somebody a few weeks ago, and, and I keep saying this, like, I haven't been this excited about a technology since I saw my first browser in college. So we, we were talking before we started recording. I said, this sort of reminds me of, of 2005, what you're doing, right? Where, where people understood that the web was a thing, but they didn't know how to use it. And so they pay people a lot of money to build sort of rudimentary websites. And that could be a very good business for you for a while. The contrary to that is, in 2005, anyone who wanted to could get online in some capacity. Yeah. It wasn't a hard thing to do. And if you wanted to type something and publish it, it was a little bit harder, but it wasn't really restrictive. It seems like VR and augmented reality are technically and, and financially difficult for most people to, to get into, either to experience or to create something for it. Am yeah. I getting that right? Uh, they are right now. So I think the, the analogy isn't 2005-era web development. I think it's like 1995 on the web. <laughs> But but that's changing pretty quickly just because the development tools are getting better. They're also getting, you know, people are making lighter development tools for amateurs. And frankly, you know, if, if you want to learn how to do, you know, if you want to learn Unity, which is one of the, the largest gaming platform for VR right now, it's not that difficult. Like you, you can do entry-level things in Unity without very much training, you know, 360 video and as much as anybody considers that VR and, you know, I don't again, that's the kind of stuff you might have experienced via YouTube, yeah. via, again, Google Cardboard. Yeah, the cost of producing that is coming down really rapidly. But I think of VR as having promise not just because the content creation tools are going to be ubiquitous, it's just I think VR is going to be ubiquitous because right now we think of the use cases as being primarily – you know, people think of VR as elite gamer technology. Right. You strap on the goggles. You've already got a very expensive gaming set. Yeah. And now you've paid hundreds of dollars more to buy. You invest even more on this. 
Yeah, and it is elite gamer technology, but it's also a lot more than that. You know, it's if you look at where the investment money is going into VR, you can kind of get a sense of where capital markets think the promise is. And, and you know, there's a lot of money going into VR R&D, military applications, healthcare applications, retail. We think about gaming because it seems to be the obvious high-end consumer use case right now. But there's a reason why also a lot of the gaming companies are putting forth these VR simulations that don't look like gaming. So you have these high-concept, kind of absurd things like Fantastic Contraption, which is a game where you just, or it's not even really, I mean, calling it a game is might even be like incorrect usage because it's a, more like a an environment that you can play in and build things. Or Google Tilt Brush is the one of the best entry-level this is, I've seen pictures of it. I'm able to play it. You actually get to go in and sort of create these amazing 3D sculptures. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, I, I think that uh, some of the smarter companies in the VR space are creating experiences like that for VR users so that it's clear that the applications are not solely or even primarily for gaming. Some people look at pictures of of white guys wearing goggles. There's that famous picture of Zuckerberg yeah. walking through, or, and, and they either laugh at it or they get genuinely creeped out. And they say, "I don't like this. If this is the future, I don't want a part of the future where we strap in goggles and and we're cut off from our surroundings." Yeah. How, how do you think about? I mean, do you think that is going to hinder adoption, or do you think people just get used to that idea, or VR becomes yeah. something else? I think it becomes something else. I think longer term, the long game is really mixed reality. So you wouldn't be wearing anything that would be presentable as, you know, the current VR enclosed goggles. You would be wearing something that looks like a pair of Warby Parker glasses. This is the vision of the future that Magic Leap is presenting, yeah. right? Yeah. Augmented reality, mixed reality, I guess is the, the new term, right? Yeah. There, there's a, an indie film called Creative Control that came out in March. It was backed by Amazon. And it's a black and white satire about yuppie New York now, and the lead character runs an agency in Williamsburg, and they're repping an augmented reality device called Augmenta. And the plot line is the protagonist seduces his best friend's girlfriend with the AR device. But if you look at the way they render the AR in that movie, it's it's completely seamless. So it almost doesn't even feel like a sci-fi movie, you know, and it's it's supposed to be near future anyway, but the AR device really does look like a pair of glasses, and it comes in a white box that looks like something Apple would produce. And I think that's the long-term scenario. So you're you know? not cut off from the world. You're adding to the world that you're, yeah. you're living in. Yeah. I mean, to- theoretically, there are going to be devices that you can also, you know, maybe double as enclosed headsets. But I think longer term, it's going to be so seamless that you won't notice it. I mean, if you asked somebody 40 years ago, are we all going to be walking around with tiny little slabs of a computer and constantly looking at them and using them all the time, that would seem preposterous. If VR and AR and mixed reality comes through, what industries do you think it sort of fundamentally disrupts? Who loses if VR gets widespread adoption? Right, We've well, seen what the web has done to music and newspapers and maybe movies or sooner than later. Uh, for instance, uh, Desktop manufacturers, you, you, you know, at that point, you probably don't even need a laptop. Um, you don't need a phone, really. Uh, so if you look at consumer electronics, that's a big one. It's conceivable that eventually we have a, a master OS, maybe Google produces it, where everything's operating in an AR environment. So anything now that feels a little bit segmented, you know, we need multiple devices to be online in different contexts, I don't think longer term, that's going to be necessary. 
there are also, you know, there, there are applications that are not, I think, what people think of when they think of VR. Like, you know, you, you see um, people using VR in healthcare for stroke therapy or for pain management. And it's like, well, what is that disrupting? It's like, well, a piece of the pharmaceutical industry, to be honest. Which is a um, pretty big industry. Yeah. People like you who know VR are basically almost dismissive of what the Times is doing. Or maybe maybe that's the wrong mm-hmm. term. But you say that's not the real thing. You need to go experience the real thing. Yeah. Since this stuff is expensive, you have to have the full immersion experience to make it work. What's the best way for a regular person to, to get access to this stuff? Right now... If you know anybody who has a full, like an, a full HMD in Oculus, or you gotta find a friend and ask him to put the headset on. Yeah, there. If you're in New York, there's a company called The Void that does a, what they call VR amusement parks, and they have an implementation at Madame Tussauds. It's expensive. You go and play fifty bucks to uh, basically run through a simulation that replicates the last scene of the movie Ghostbusters, and you shoot ghosts and you know try to seduce Sigourney Weaver or whatever. I was going to say, thing. up until Sigourney, we were part of that sound yeah. for either me or my kids. And it seems like this stuff is going to show up in amusement parks fairly soon. Yeah, it already is. I mean, the, the, if you look at industries that are going to be disrupted, you know, movie theaters, amusement parks, the point at which you have, you know, full body ha- haptics and you can experience a roller coaster just by sitting in, you know, a small space and putting on a headset and feels exactly the same to you, you know, then there there's not a lot of incentive for amusement parks to build super expensive, high risk. How far are we from that? Pretty, I mean, it already exists. Six Flags is putting a ton of money into it. And you can go to most of these chain, you know, chain amusement parks and they have some kind of Right, they're, they're adding it to the mix, but it's not replacing a roller coaster yet. But yeah, the, not yet. But when you look at it, particularly things like liability, mm-hmm. it makes total sense to you know, replace as much of it no as you gonna can. No one's going to fall out of a pair of goggles. No. So if people want to ask you more about this, they find you on the web, they find you at... Uh, yeah, the theinsurrection.com is our, yeah, espires at theinsurrection.com. This so. is a super humid room we're in right now, so I appreciate <laughs> your time more than normal. Thanks Thank again, um, and I'll see you tonight. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Elizabeth, and thanks to you guys for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this interview as much as I did conducting it, great news, there are plenty more available. All you got to do is subscribe over at iTunes, Google Play, wherever you find podcasts. Leave us a review if you'd like. Stars are great, too. While you're there, you can also look for other fine Recode podcasts. Kara Swisher hosts Recode Decode. Lauren Good from The Verge uh, works with us on Too Embarrassed to Ask. They're both great. So is Recode Replay. That's all our great conference interviews. Thanks for our sponsors, Video Blocks and Helix. And thanks to Digital Media, which makes all of this possible. See you next week with another great guest. Bye-bye.